And it's time to talk some quirky news. And joining me on the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. We did just try to contact our colleague, Brian Smith, who's in Jakarta at the moment. But planes and traffic and that don't make that possible. Nonetheless, Errol, you and I can talk a few subjects. I've been there myself recently and uh, he's almost certainly stuck in traffic. Indeed. Carsguide.com.au. It's an online web-based service that uh, tells you all about cars and testing cars and other things. They've actually started to run an advertising campaign. And it's beyond the test drive. It has one of their test drivers who goes into a dealership, gets a car, but doesn't just drive it around the block uh, and uh, tries a whole pile of things, including loading up the back and so on. And, of course, the point is that it's beyond the test drive. It covers a wide range of issues which you might like to know about and which you might not get a chance to think about just by going to a dealer. Errol, were you convinced by this ad? I can see that it would be funny to the average person, but it does seem to be based on the uh, naive assumption that motoring journalists take cars for test drives the same way a potential buyer does. Mm. In, in other words, that they only have the car for five or ten minutes and then have to some, but the journalist somehow then has to write a review of it. Mm. So, yes. I mean, we we can get a good impression of a car in that time, but it's it's when you drive it to work, do the shopping, drive up the coast, etc. That's how you actually know what a car is like to live with, as opposed to simply drive well of course as soon as you get into a car your first impressions are totally dictated by the car you've just been driving yes and if it's uh, you know a significantly different car well then that new car can feel either fantastically good or you know underpowered or whatever now the process we really do of course is we don't go to a dealer we pick it up in a large warehouse the person is not dressed in business attire they do not try to sell you anything I sit in it and set the mirrors and seat, and then I drive off and realise I should select a radio station. This can be difficult, especially if the previous person has set stations that I don't want to listen to, such as a range of wanker FM stations or shock jocks. I then decide to set the Bluetooth, and this can be difficult, so I'm starting to hate the car. The volume is then not high enough. I try for the knob, the screen button or the screen slide to turn it up, and it uh, doesn't uh, work easily. And on the, if it's on the screen, my pudgy fingers make it hard to work. I then want to make a phone call and the controls on the steering wheel are the opposite of the last car. I announce what I want to do for the voice actuation. It doesn't understand me. It then goes through a long list of options, which I can't remember. At this stage, I'm beginning to loathe the car. And if I've just stepped out of a supercharged V8 into a reasonable family car, I can't get over how underpowered it is. That's my point, isn't it, Errol? If you, you know, it's the car you get out of. <laughs> yes, David. I then realise I've inadvertently kept the keys to the V8, so I turn around, turning on the windscreen wipers instead of the blinkers because they're on the other side. I get frustrated and I start driving back, testing the limits of the tyres, the brakes and the horn, seeing if the horn works. I spill my coffee, thus testing the stain resistance of the carpet, and then travelling along the car beeps at me, and I've got no idea why. I stop and consult the manual. Now, this is not a relevant test, because no one will ever do that, nor should they, because, Errol, you know, if you've looked at the manual, they're never going to answer what you're after. If, uh, it's certainly not going to be forthcoming. <laughs> yeah, too true, too true. Someone admires the cars as I'm driving and I get a smug look on my face. That is a very relevant test. 
Now, I, I should keep the car for a week, as you said, Errol, but if it's an automated manual gearbox, when I get back to the warehouse, I give it back. <laughs> so, really, the ideal or idealistic way that it's portrayed is perhaps not really as we would test it, is it, Errol? No, no, I think I think you have to um, get over the, um, the the first day or so of all of the things that annoy you about the car, mm. and then you can actually start to appreciate the good things. <laughs> David, I, I love your line of um of of your sorbet, yes, which is of course the the small family car, uh, the one you actually own, yes, that you get into as the uh, as the as the the change from the uh, the two brand new used car smell things you've just been. Be between. It cleanses the palate. Yes. It gets away all those past impressions. Yes, my car's getting that way too, unless I drive the newly released model of the same car that I've had for 10 years. Mm. <laughs> I think you've got to go back to it and drive it around so that you're judging every new car with, a, as I say, a fresh palate. It makes it clear as to what you're doing. It, it also indicates, of course, Errol, that these websites are getting very, very serious. One just sold for $35 million. Mm. It tends to indicate, because uh, these websites are, are free, so it tends to indicate that they're making so much revenue from advertising and things on their website that they're actually advertising their website. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is indeed big business, but what goes on beforehand, I won't even begin to try and uh, relate the stories that may happen at a launch, which may involve a nice meal and an amount of alcohol, which perhaps not well before, just before we drive, but uh, perhaps the night before, as we get some largesse from the car companies. Brian was going to tell us a story, but uh, let's just touch on it. Driver technology will change how a vehicle looks, and uh, someone's been talking to the designers. Now, Volvo has a range of different things. Did you see some of those, Errol, and do you think they're appropriate? Well, most of them seem to basically involve getting the um, business class seat from a uh, modern airline and plonking it into a self-driving car. Hmm. That, that will give you a, a good picture of it, about it. The big difference here is that the car companies desperately want to get rid of the pedals and the steering wheel. And I heard from Ford the other day saying, you know, very easily, well, of course, the car of the future won't have steering wheels and that. If you get rid of that, you totally change the concept of the space inside the car. I've got to say, I don't think we're about to, to get to that stage at all for a whole pile of reasons. And I think we've got to be very careful that the car companies are not over-promising and what will ultimately be under-delivering. Mm, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not there yet. Well, not by a long way. And, and there's a couple of things. Anyway, what, the, what Volvo said, they'll have fold-down screens to cover not only for the driver, like the little fold-down uh, sunlight uh, protector thing. It will be over all the windows, potentially, so that you can recline the seat flat and, and have a sleep. Or the, the car screen itself could well become like a picture theatre as you don't have to see out it. I guess then, Errol, you need surround sound and what was those vibrating sort of things that used to be or became a big part of movie theatres? The thump-thumping seats. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's almost like it's trying to hide the outside world. I mean, you, you might as well get in a car that doesn't have windows. 
the way they're talking about them. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's an optional extra. So you will be able to make use of a sunroof because you can actually lie down and look out. Whereas if you're sitting in the front seat, you've got to crane your neck if you want to do it. Mm. Yes, it's just you just have this vague sense of things, images going over your head otherwise. I, I, I think one of the ones I loved was the concept of a, of a vehicle interior that doubles as, as a gym. I just thought, I'm sure we'll have a stationary cycle and a treadmill yeah. because obviously you would prefer to be stuck in traffic while you're also walking nowhere. <laughs> and then, of course, when you get out at the other end, you won't be able to park too near your final destination, so you'll get on a movable footway. Yes. <laughs> One that moves you instead of you moving it. Yeah. We did uh, a story a, a few months ago about a, a bus, a service where there was a bus that was going to have an onboard gym. Hmm. It was a similar irony. Hmm. I wonder if, so, you know, you go for saunas, showers, toilet. Are these are things that we might ultimately, given that if uh, these autonomous cars take off, then an inside toilet may be necessary because there'll be so much traffic on the road, you'll be there for hours. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, well, I, I kind of like the idea of just, just rolling out of bed and then just getting in the car and you get ready for work during the trip. Hmm. RVs. Yeah, I mean, it's basically an RV with, a, with, a, with its own computer driver. We did a story in the news which totally contradicts this, that these designers are saying, without any qualifications, driverless technology will cut accidents by more than 90%. That is an assumption. That is a huge assumption. But mm. they go on and say that means, quote, that means you don't have to build cars like tanks with crumple zones and bodyworks full of airbags. Apparently Dale Harrow, the professor of vehicle design at London's Royal College of Art, uh, they were also the people, some of the graduates from there, that designed Daewoo's for a while. I say no more. <laughs> That is ridiculous. To make that yes, statement yes. is absolutely ridiculous. Can you guarantee yeah. that an autonomous car will be able to totally avoid a semi-trailer that suddenly goes off the road or a kangaroo that trumps out? The notion mm, that it yes. won't happen is absurd. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and maybe, maybe that might be true in 100 years when every single thing around us is an automated vehicle. You're still going to be surrounded by ordinary people in their ordinary cars, driving them the old-fashioned way for a long time. That also assumes the kangaroos are going to be automated. Yes, yes. Well, anything is possible, David. <laughs> They're now mixing their students with things like architects and furniture makers. We'll see more glass in the bodywork, as in modernist houses and the lightweight materials you get in contemporary furniture. Seats made of pale plywood or moulded carbon fibre. You could ride along in an Eames. Is that an elegant chair? I assume so, yes. I noticed the, um, the illustration um, of the, uh, the Volvo in this case. Uh, it's not wearing a seatbelt. So I think it's an interesting concept. Well, if you lie down a seatbelt, you will submarine. You'll go underneath yes. any sort of belt, unless it's wrapped around an area that would cause you a lot of damage anyway. Yes, could be quite uncomfortable. <laughs> it's interesting that none of the concept art has a seatbelt. So uh, maybe that maybe the, the, this is this utopia in the distant future where your car will never need to do an emergency stop. Yes, anything is possible. My main problem of getting furniture involved in it means the Antiques Roadshow is going to be all about cars. 
<laughs> and then Ikea will get involved and you won't be able to turn your car on without an Allen key. One of the guys said, and I quote, a friend likens car design to dog breeding. Apparently uh, a series of gradual improvements. Uh, now we're inventing a new species. Can, can I say dog breeding worries me enormously because they focus on so many things that a whole range of other ones go wrong. Have you ever seen some of these purebred dogs? friend of mine has a uh, has a chihuahua and um it can't jump onto a lounge that's how weak it is in the back legs but but it's but it's a beautiful dog yes <laughs> now david most of these cars of course will be electric which means they won't have a lot of particulate matter coming out their exhausts which leads me into my next story hmm. now most of that goes out the into the air as pollution but not anymore David, because there's an amazing invention from those cunning wizards in Bangalore who are not only capturing the uh, soot from your exhaust, but they're turning it into art. Now, they're incredibly complex device, a metal tube with some wire mesh at one end, attaches to the exhaust pipe and collects soot. The artists in residue then turn that burnt carbon into ink and paint. But just like the fumes from a Model T, it comes in any colour you want, as long as it's black. (laughs) Ah, dear. Why don't they do that with every car and just then recycle the soot? Yes, well, I I would um, tend to assume that if you're putting this thing on the end of the exhaust pipe, that it's going to inhibit the the airflow a bit and reduce your (laughs) fuel efficiency. (laughs) That would be my best guess. Mm. (laughs) But, um, yes, I I was wondering, um, would you buy cheaper dirtier fuel so you can make more ink oh okay what if you're a prolific artist yes yes i need to drive in melbourne back so i can complete my next masterpiece i get get inspiration and paint to be able to do it Mm. it's the the thing i've noticed though is that a full tank of gas only produces a tiny amount of particulate matter which produces an even tinier amount of ink um, and this could go a long way to explaining why ink is so bloody expensive. Could we do other byproducts of cars? Perhaps we could end up painting in oils. Well, oils ain't oils, David. Ah, well, that's right. You would then be able to a whole debate about what's good. The other other thing is you get old tyres and do like a patchwork quilt. Oh, yes, yes, that could work, yeah. Might be a way to do it. If your car overheats, of course, you've got some watercolours. <laughs> It's green. Mate, well, they'd be green, wouldn't they, because of <laughs> yes, yes. antifreeze in the radiator. Now, Errol, if you're an artist, do you have to do the same amount as you pollute in the car? and Or does an artist get to drive a dirty diesel in the city centre because they're collecting some of the stuff? I, I would say you have to. I mean, you, you would have to certainly produce your own ink. Does that mean, because we're using pollution, that an artist will only paint apoplectic pictures? I think so, yes, yes. It could be the, um, the sort of the Mad Max scenario where you know, oil is the, uh, the most expensive resource on the earth. If Pauline Hansen paints with this, will she do a country meadow scene with, with the car pollution that proves that climate change is not real? Well, if there, was, if there was no pollution, you wouldn't be able to make any ink. Uh, and finally, Errol, there was, uh, is this one that Brian was to do, but he's not with us, two sophist- unsophisticated car thieves failed to steal a humble Nissan Skyline hours before making off in the world's rarest Ferrari, a Melbourne quarters herd, a 1972 Ferrari Daytona. 
was found a day later torched. Now, this is an Australian story. Errol, don't the youth of today have car pictures on their walls so they can recognise what is a classic car? What's gone wrong? I don't know, David. Well, this, this car was made before I was born. However, having said that, it is a beautiful car. And um, personally, David, uh, I, I blame Ferris Bueller's day off because it's ah. got an awful lot to answer for when it comes to joyriding and wrecking Ferraris. Yes. But you see, I don't even think they understand the celebrity culture because the Ferrari was once owned by Dodie Fayed and Pink Floyd's uh, Roger somebody. Roger Waters, yeah. What we need is we need every Ferrari owner should temporarily lend their car to a Kardashian. <laughs> would, you, would you want your Ferrari tainted that way? The back seats might become stained. <laughs> I, I, the, the thing I love about this story is that, um, um, that they claimed that they were surprised to find the cars when they broke open a car workshop. <laughs> they were surprised to find cars, you know. That was part of the defence. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they broke it open and it was the car uh, repairer's fault for having a car in there. Yes, yes. They, weren't expect- they wouldn't have stolen the cars if they weren't there. <laughs> the sort of unfortunate part here about this story is that uh, not only was there this, uh, this gorgeous Ferrari Daytona, there was a 1986 Ferrari 328, which was also stolen and torched. Um, unfortunately, they, they could only prove that they stole the vehicles. They couldn't prove that they torched them. So the, uh, the crime has only, uh, only partially been solved so far. You see, it's in Australia. If it had been a Holden V8, they would never have burnt it. <laughs> Particularly if it was a ute. Now, the only yes, other th- yes. thing is they talked about the pain to the owners. Do, do the owners get to give a victim statement? <laughs> yes, I don't know. Perhaps yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's a one of a kind thing though that they've destroyed in this case. So it's um, I, I I was wondering to myself, is there some sort of Ferrari collector or restorer out there that still wants the wreck for the parts from it that they can salvage just to restore another one? Well, they're probably worth more. Yes, it could well be. <laughs> Anything is possible. Errol, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, we'll catch you up next week. No worries, David. See you later.